This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontier show number 18, recorded on February 17th, 2015. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska, and we post the show with world-class show notes uh, out at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, of course, you can always send those to me in an email. You can just send them Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can track me down or find me on Twitter at Jay Collison, or now you can call in those questions. And the guys would love to hear from you on those questions. Call them in, 402-478-8450. And, of course, so we'll play those questions right here on the program. We want to let you know that the TheAverageGuy.tv, of course, is powered by Maple Grove Partners Web Hosting. It's secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people you know and trust. And you know Christian. Uh, he's behind it. For more information, visit MapleGrovePartnersAllOneWord.com. And now Cyber Frontiers is a part of the Geeks Network. Find the links to this show and many other great podcasts over at the Geeks Network, just thegeeksnetwork.com. All right. Well, typically, I would say joining me tonight uh, from their confines of uh, of the University of Maryland at College Park uh, would be Christian and Ashton. But actually, we recorded this episode a couple days ago. Uh, I got the opportunity to fly out to D.C. to see Christian and Ashton on campus. We actually got a snow day, which was awesome. Uh, on the day we were there, snowed six inches in Washington, D.C. And uh, so we used the day. We took an opportunity. We gathered some of the guys from the campus, took them down into the basement, into the, one of the ACES labs, and we recorded this podcast. And so we hope you enjoy it. It will be Cyber Frontiers 18. And so with that, uh, we'll send it over to Christian. Hey, so we're here at the University of Maryland with uh, all the guys, and not all the guys, but a good subset of the guys, um, in the uh, ACES Cybersecurity Lab at Prince Frederick Hall in the University of Maryland. So we just thought we'd uh, get a chance to sit down and have a conversation around cybersecurity and what's going on over here. Um, I'm joined today by uh, Jim, who is joining us at the University of Maryland and uh, flew out from the great land of Nebraska uh, to be with us, uh, Ashton who is our uh, co-host on the Cyber Frontiers podcast, Colin King, new intern to the Washington, D.C. office at the Gallup Organization, Jeremy Crock, all things cyber in the ACES program, education chair of the student board and incoming government solutions architect at AT&T, and Franz Payer, CEO of Cyber Skyline LLC and all things behind cyber hacking and cyber education. Good to have you all guys here. Um, I want to start with you, Franz. I know you've been doing a lot of work lately on the platform. We talked about this a couple episodes ago. Uh, what's been going on in the last few months? What are the changes that are coming up? And talk a little bit about the competition that you're hosting uh, at the university next month. So in the past couple of, uh, I guess it's been a couple months now, I've been working mainly on the user experience, especially because you know these kids, uh, they want to learn about what cybersecurity is, and if you put too many roadblocks in, in their way, it's going to take away from the experience, and it'll it could turn them off from the, the, the field in general. So that's what we've been working on. I think I can probably do a screen share if I can, if I dare to. Um, you can see here, this is like, this is actually, I just made this today, um, but we've started adding these new interfaces to make resources available to the users as they're doing the challenges. So at the top right, we have like a description and a hint. Um, that goes along with it. You actually submit your answer in this little chat window. So it's like you're talking to 
your uh, supervisor while you're trying to solve these different challenges. And I guess for people who don't know what the platform is, um, it's a cybersecurity competition where there's Virtual City has been infiltrated by hackers, and it's your job as the competitor to regain control of the city. And so in this particular challenge, you've, you're given kind of this little interface for effectively a kind of Facebook feed, but it's for hackers, and they've encrypted all their posts and communications because they're trying to coordinate with each other, and you want to intercept these communications. So the challenge here is you've got to decipher it, and then you're going to get a couple, challenge, uh, couple questions about this feed here that you'll have to answer. And we've taken this um, pretty far, so we actually have a built-in code editor, uh, which I'm hoping will show up on the screen. Um, so this is like a C program that uh, you have to find a vulnerability in and answer a question about that. Uh, we also have these nice-looking user interfaces um, that can be completely customizable, so you don't need to have this windowed feel. You can actually use the entire space however you want to. So that... That's the idea behind it, and we're getting kind of excited because uh, it's only two and a half weeks now until our, our big competition here at the University of Maryland. We have currently have 150 people registered, and uh, we're going to get 200 people by the, by the end of the, uh, the two and a half weeks. It's getting pretty exciting. We're pulling in mentors from a bunch of different places because we want to make sure that you know, these kids who attend, they have play people to talk to, and then they have ideas of where to go next after this competition. So I think we're pulling in... Uh, people from Hopkins, people from the NSA, um, some nonprofits out there. We have, well, we have Lockheed coming as well. So there's, there's quite a few people behind this, and I'm getting kind of excited because it's almost there. You've been working on this in excess for a year now, right? You started this back in March of last year, or uh, spring break, April, right? April. Okay, so it's, you're almost coming up on one year already, so... Uh, I think we're looking forward to all attending here, I know, um, and putting a, putting a team together to rock it, so pretty excited about that. Um, Jeremy, I want to turn it over to you, and then I think we're going to start having a conversation um, around, you know, reflect a little bit about the fact that, you know, this is almost the end of our second year. We're coming amazingly fast, almost on the halfway point, a couple more weeks, and we'll be at week seven already. I think this is week four of the semester, so getting close. Not exactly half, but definitely well over a quarter of the way through. Um, talk a little bit about, I guess, what have been the most uh, memorable things about ACES 1, and what are you looking to do now that you have your first citation under the belt and uh, move forward from there in your last two years of campus? Right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me today, Christian. Um, so in my experience with ACES so far, the best thing I've felt about the program is the experiential learning. So pretty much any other university where I went to, any other program, even at University of Maryland, I would be involved with would not have given me the um, experiences of doing research with professors and faculty on campus um, right. as ACES has so far. Right. So for example, um, last spring I did research with Professor, um, or Dr. Kukier, the director of the ACES program. Um, I did it with you and Ashton. We did some NetFlow analysis and some basic research for him. Then over the summer, I extended that a bit further and did research with Dr. Jim Pertolo on campus, who has been a guest on this show before. Um, over the summer, I did research with him in vulnerability analysis. So we looked at trends in packages and when vulnerabilities are introduced, and one of the PhD students researching with Dr. Pertolo is taking that data that I worked with another undergrad to harvest 
to um, look for metrics that can predict vulnerabilities in the long term. What are the skill sets you're going to take away from the first two years of this program, and what skills are you maybe still looking to pick up on before you um, graduate and go into the workforce? Right, so obviously there are the technical skills. Um, so it's been really great to get this hands-on experience that I have thus far in the program. So working with honeypots was a great experience, doing the research um, in scripting languages and um, throwing things together kind of over the summer to do statistical analysis. Um, was very helpful. I'd also probably say, um, well, yeah, statistics and then um, scripting and kind of the analysis of the different data that we have coming in and kind of looking on a larger scale and how this impacts our systems, how this impacts our security, things of that nature. I want to mention, by the way, congratulations on your uh, third place national placement in the IBM Master of the Mainframe competition. Uh, I know the IBM executives are looking forward to flying you out to IBM's headquarters for a three-day wine dine, so uh, that was really great. Can you talk a little bit about what that competition was and what you uh, set out to do there? Sure. So this competition um, started a long time ago. I feel like it's almost in its eighth year or something like that. It's been around for a long time. And the general premise of it is to teach people, specifically students in both high school and college, um, about mainframes. Mainframes are very much still in common use today. Banks use them. Airlines use them. All large enterprises use mainframes today, but not a lot of people know what they are or know how to interact with one. So IBM created this competition to encourage students to kind of interact with those systems and learn how they work. Uh, I participated in it my first time last year, and I just did part one. It's a three-part competition that runs from about October to December every year. Uh, the first part is pretty basic. It's how to connect to a mainframe, how to kind of edit files, use the basic system. Part two is a little bit more of development. You have to run some programs. You have to experiment with some of the deeper features of a mainframe, kind of learn how to edit code, run code, create jobs, do all sorts of stuff like that. Part three is much more personalizable. You kind of have to build your own application to interface with some data sets that they give you. Um, so for example, this year, they gave you credit card transactions for a made-up store. And your job was to create a program that would allow analysts to interface with the data and kind of do different reports on maybe the sales in one store versus another, things of that nature. And one thing of interest in the competition is that the ZOS platform, which is IBM's operating system, all that development was on COBOL, which I thought was particularly interesting because most people think uh, COBOL is a dead language. However, it is still the number one in running or, or runtime um, application that uh, is out on the in the world, right? So, yeah, so not as many people are developing COBOL anymore, but it's sure it's sure being uh, maintained. So great to see that those skills were put in a competition because I know that's not pretty prevalent in, in industry, especially when looking at resumes. Uh, there's definitely a, a niche of industry that wouldn't really know what to do with that skill. So that's pretty cool. Um, are, are all of you, uh, most all of you are on the ACES competition team, right? Um, Colin, why don't you talk a little bit about some of the skills that you're getting from the competition team and kind of how it relates to 
um, the learning objectives in the ACES program and kind of what you hope to get out of it with some of the competitions that are coming up in Maryland uh, this spring. So I was on the competition team last semester during my first year at Maryland and ACES and I participated throughout with, uh, with the MDCC competition or is it MDCCC? MDC3. MDC3, okay, so there are three Cs. Um, and it was a wonderful opportunity because it was my first chance to really be in a competition because I don't know about you guys, but I came in here with no cybersecurity knowledge whatsoever. And it was a great opportunity to just meet with people and work side by side in a competition to learn some of the technical aspects of cybersecurity that you know aren't really covered in all the classes that I was taking that semester. Um, so it was wonderful doing, I worked with a bunch of sophomores, um, not, not like you guys, but um, I worked with Thomas and some other guys that had some experience under their belt. And we basically went through actually Franz's list um, to basically learn a lot of cybersecurity technical knowledge in you know maybe a couple hours, kind of like a hackathon almost. Um, so you know, yeah, it was it was a great experience for me personally. I think I learned a lot. I'm looking forward to this semester because last semester I wasn't able to be involved as much, but there are a bunch of competitions coming up this year that I like to get involved with, and the meetings I think have been a great opportunity for everyone here because just going through uh, what was it the holiday competition, right? Holiday special. Sans forensics. Um, yeah, holiday the Sans Forensic Holiday Challenge, that was a wonderful opportunity to kind of see, you know, really deep in. I think in terms of ACEs, in terms of technical knowledge, the cybersecurity team has been the best opportunity for that for me. I think you guys might be able to agree. So Ashton, we haven't gotten you jumped into the conversation yet. Um, as an as a out-of-state student coming from New Jersey, University of Maryland isn't necessarily, I guess, on as many people's radar. Well, I guess tri-state area, right? So New Jersey, New York, pretty popular for out-of-state choice. But by and large, um, the university attracts mostly in-state students. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what attracted you to ACES as a program um, what and what things were expected and unexpected about you being in the program so far in terms of what, you, what you've gotten out of it? Yeah, so... Uh I think the main reason why I was interested in coming to into the ACES program was just because of the uh, well. To be honest, when I was applying, I didn't I didn't know for sure if I wanted to do cybersecurity. I was uh, up in the air between that and the entrepreneurship honors college. Um, and I gave both you, you like a lot points um, when you're applying. So you have I think you have like 120 points that you allot uh, for different honors college. And I applied 60 for ACES, and I applied 60 for the Entrepreneurship Honors College, and by chance, essentially, uh, or the, by the selection of the officers of ACES, um, by the advisors, that I ended up in this program, and I'm very thankful that that was the case. Uh, as far as, it, it's interesting because, yeah, I'm out of state. Actually, a good portion, not a good portion, but I'd say University of Maryland was probably the third biggest college that my uh, class went to. We had about 10 students out of the 400 that graduated, which isn't too bad considering that, you know, we have Rutgers and state and things like that. Um, but in terms of the, the outcomes for me, uh, the biggest thing that I took away was just the incredible resources in terms of the other students um, and the staff that I met. So the, the, the community, uh, the ACES community is one of the most amazing communities I've ever been a part of because uh, of the incredible knowledge and the the curiosity of the students, um, and then coupled with the resources that we have access to, uh, I've been working with Dr. Huguet on NetFlow research. I worked with uh, 
Christian and Jeremy and then two semesters after them, I've continued the research that was being conducted by the graduate student that worked with us then. So I've had an exceptional opportunity to learn about some very interesting research that's being done to detect these and, and classify these malicious um, and benign activities on the network. So uh, yeah, I, I think in addition to, I we think we can all attest to the fact that we came away with a lot of skills. Um, even if you haven't completed the program yet, it, it seems that you know you come away with a lot of knowledge. But even more so, coming away with uh, the friendships and and feeling like you belong to a community of students who are just incredibly gifted and incredibly ambitious um, is in some ways so much more important because it's not just like you gain these things, but you can continue learning um, and continue doing amazing things. So. I don't know if that's uh, something that I just feel, but I, I feel like that's something that everybody in ACES kind of has the, the same emotion towards it. So Jim, um, you're here at the University of Maryland to kind of get the lay of the land of the campus and what's going on with the University of Maryland students. And all the students who are here today in our roundtable, all at this point in their first and second year are already on the ground with internships or active employment. Um, from a recruitment perspective, how prevalent is it that you see students already engaged in the workforce uh, in their first and second year of college? And what are the types of uh, key indicators and experiences that you as a recruiter are looking for for computer science students uh, throughout the United States? Yeah, you know, Christian, I, um, I'm pretty impressed here at University of Maryland. You guys by far. And, and Part of it is I'm involved uh, with you guys uh, because I know you so well. Uh, Sevi on the podcast, uh, Colin, we're hiring you. Uh, you through Christian, Franz, you've been on our, our, our podcast as well. Um, so you guys are probably the top one percent of the of the students that get engaged early in the college experience. I certainly we recruited a lot of colleges, and some master's students aren't getting as engaged in the actual um, you know the actual process of software development as you guys are. So. Kudos to you guys. You're exactly what we're looking for. I think what's what the industry is looking for too is to get you involved in the processes of software development, uh, you know, super early, um, and, and to do it that way. So a little bit, I have a little bit of bias here in some ways, Christian, because I know you guys all really well. But um, I, I think the industry on the industry is looking for experience, and it's great. And, it, and I think they're especially looking that for that outside the classroom. So. That's whether you're doing a cybersecurity or you're doing a hackathon or you're doing uh, whatever, the clubs, associations, the stuff that you guys do. I, I work with a lot of students and I look at their resume and I say, well, tell me the about experience. Well, I took a class, right? Classes are great, but, but oftentimes most of the stuff that you guys get uh, outside of class is really, what's, is really what's most important. So I think from an industry standpoint, what, the, what ACES is doing here is is perfect for what I think the industry is looking for, which is experience from day one. Not, you know, not hoping it'll happen, but actually giving you guys some good opportunities to do that in your program. So, I guess, um, well, that was that was pretty good coverage of Aces. I feel like we got all the way around the table there, did the 360. So, I guess for our next 360, um, we'll call them 360 questions. Our next 360 topic will be on. Uh, what was the most memorable cyber event? Can be any type of event, uh, you know, in in the internet, in the news, in the world. Um, most most eventful or shocking or surprising cyber event um, that you saw in 2014, and what what was it that stuck out to you uh, the most? So I think we'll start with Franz, and then just go around uh, clockwise here. 
Um, I'd probably say Shellshock was the biggest thing that stuck with me from last year because that's when I actually started seeing like mainstream news coverage trying to like explain to the normal people who aren't experienced in cybersecurity like what this actually was and what it had to do with them. And for the most part, for average consumers, you know, users, they have no no experience and no control over what happens with Shellshock. I mean, this is a vulnerability that affects enterprises and, and businesses and doesn't affect an individual consumer, but that's like the media still tried to target those people. And I thought that's when we got to see a huge discrepancy in like how the actual problem is portrayed versus what it is. And you saw a lot of reporters um, trying to explain things. I mean, you saw this back with like the Target hack as well, where these reporters didn't have the, the knowledge and experience to report on it accurately in a way that, I mean, it's a tough job to do, to, to, to take these technical problems and explain them to normal people. Um, and they are obviously didn't have the capacity to do so, and I'm starting to see more of a push where uh, like reporters are starting to get more training on security, uh, security ideas and concepts. But I think there needs to be a lot more of that before we can actually feel like the news can portray a new vulnerability without making it seem like the internet is collapsing under all, all of its weight. Because every single time there's a new hack, they make it sound like everything's ending, the apocalypse has happened, and now you can't use Facebook anymore because there's a vulnerability out there and you might lose your credit card information. So these are the types of things that I think kind of have to be worked on because we don't want to spread mass panic. I think a big issue is how do we accurately portray vulnerabilities and how do we make sure that people understand them and um, continue to stay safe on the internet. Franz, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to talk about um, shell shock and the target breach and uh, even Heartbleed, for that matter, because, I mean, all these um, events coming into the public realm kind of make people more aware about this field we're interested in and generate the um, talk about what we care about. Um, another important breach that happened this year was probably the UMD breach, although that might have been 2013. So about a year ago, we had the UMD breach here, which um, obviously was uh, close to home for a lot of us, but um, it, it just makes us think a lot more. It was um, a situation where a contractor for the university that was doing pen testing went a little too far, um, reported through some you know, unexpected means, things like that. So it kind of calls back to the Snowden issue um, from a couple years ago, right? With the um, well, let me just jump in there and say real quick that um, that was the second breach, right? The first breach, we never found the guy, and he would just basically it was all anonymous through torrent. So I just thought I would insert that. Yeah, thanks for the clarification there. I mean, again, that's the whole media trying to portray things. I mean, there are some things that are lost in translation, obviously, but um, that was probably what. I'd say would be the biggest breach or cybersecurity news for me in the last year. Speaking of how these vulnerabilities are portrayed in the media, I think it's really interesting the past couple of months how we've seen the Google Zero Day program be portrayed because um, they've been releasing a lot of bugs, especially at Microsoft, and a couple more coming out against Apple. Um, and we're seeing you know, how quickly can people discover these vulnerabilities and then respond to them. And it's interesting because a lot of people are hearing that Google is releasing these vulnerabilities and they see it as reckless behavior by Google. But in reality, you know, it's trying to make some way to enforce these companies to actually fix these bugs in the first place. And you know, I think it's interesting because we have to find some kind of fine line between the two. Like how long do they give these companies to fix them when they don't have a lot of time and resources to fix them in the first place? 
between you know releasing the public where they can get taken advantage of. One uh, one media story I was surprised is not mentioned yet because I thought that was going to be the very first one and possibly the only one that we would discuss is the Sony breach um, because I, I felt like that's the one that stood out in my mind as um, it just had so many levels of, of intrigue. I, I mean, not necessarily from like not necessarily from even a cybersecurity perspective because uh, it doesn't sound like Sony had particularly good. Um, standards in place for how they protected their data, but from the perspective of there's this possibility that North Korea is involved, and there's a statement by the president, and then there's the, their North Korean uh, internet network goes down temporarily, uh, and and it's this movie about the, the dictator there, and it's a comedy, and it's got Seth Rogen, and just so many, like, crazy things. <laughs> I, 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 and then you know people just almost wanted to see it as like a statement, and it became uh, I I think as far as like media concern, it was it was the highest by far. I mean, it, it might have from from our perspective, the University of Maryland breach was big, um, shell shock was big, maybe because we're in the you know the Aces program, and this is the sort of stuff that we are interested in. But I think the Sony breach was big in a whole different context uh, for people who aren't... I think the people who even missed the shell shock breach, which we talked about as sort of like the first time that mainstream America would care, if they missed that, then they definitely didn't miss the Sony breach because it was it was everywhere for, for months, practically. Um, so, I don't know. That's just what I took away from, from this year in cybersecurity. I want to ask you guys the question. I mean, that, that Sony breach is almost movie-esque like in its breachness, right? I mean, even to the point where we're not even really taught. It's like the it's like a movie that gets popular when it comes out for a couple months, and now it's completely out of the news eye, and no one's really. I mean, for the most part, the public, and and Franz, like you said, I think, or Jeremy, maybe it was you. The media is making the the, the media and education around this. We need to get a little bit of education, but they sensationalize these things so much. Let me ask. We'll go back around as we talk about this. Doesn't that seem, I mean, isn't that just the oddest breach? Obviously, there, could, there should, probably was somebody on the inside helping out, helping out with that. But doesn't that seem just a little too good to be true and too sensational for a movie? And then it was about that, and then it was North Koreans, and they only have four ports to the Internet, so we, we blocked that. I mean, it was just too good, right? I mean, so, so um, Ashton, let me, let me send it back your way. Don't you think that's just a little too good to be true in some ways? Yeah, I think it's an example of where the truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. Like if you had released this, yeah, if you had released this as a movie before it had happened, people would have been like, "What? This would never happen. This is ridiculous. Like, there's why is there a movie and what what's all this? There's, they only have four. Why why would North Korea even try and do that? It's like not. It's just a movie. It was a, right. a parody. Like when I when we were talking about it before, I, I still think that if they if uh, they were trying to cripple America. The way to do it is not by um, hacking Sony. It's maybe going towards critical infrastructure, shutting down, you know, nuclear power reactors or something like that. Uh, it, it just seems like sort of a, a funny concept to begin with. But I mean, in some ways, it's not a truly amazing feat of cybersecurity. Like I mentioned before, it's just sort of more a sensationalized. Um, account of what happened. And I, I think, like we've talked about, that's something that we can kind of attribute to the 
way that the media often portrays things and the way that they can get the, mo the, the largest viewership and really engage people and try and lock them in. But now when we look back at it, it's kind of like, huh, yeah, remember that? That was, that was weird. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really on the, uh, it, it, within view anymore. So I don't know. I'll pass it around to Colin. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was, you know, incredibly interesting to hear that the FBI announced, you know, we think it's North Korea, because as soon as I heard about this, I was like, no, there's no absolute way that North Korea did this. It's got to be some random group that's somehow, you know, framing North Korea for this. But the legitimacy of the FBI, I believe it was the FBI who initially announced it, that said, you know, it is North Korea just kind of blew my mind. You know, something I don't think I've really seen where you have a government doing something like this to another, at least... At least from my understanding, it's not very common, at least at this scale. Um, so just seeing it happen is kind of, yeah. I mean, I totally agree with Ashton. This is very movie quality, and I think whoever pounces on it first is going to make a lot of money. It's going to be better than interview, even. <laughs> well, I think the most important part about this, yeah, it, it, we could talk conspiracy, conspiracy theories all day about what really happened there, but I think the big takeaway is now cyber is becoming much more of a policy issue. It's kind of coming into the politics Sphere. I mean, President Obama is making statements about cybersecurity, and we have a lot of core policy issues about um, cybersecurity in this country as it is now, and there's a lot of formation to take place over the next few years, maybe decade, um, in this realm. So it's going to be interesting to see how these events kind of shape and influence that policy to come. Well, I want, I want to start off saying that uh, when I heard about this, the Sony breach initially, I was under the impression it was a really good marketing campaign. Like, I thought that it was all fake and that Sony just said this just because they wanted it. And to be honest, they wouldn't have gotten the attention that they, they did. I mean, I, I didn't think the movie was that worthy of that much sensationalism. Um, but I, I really thought that um, th that was the situation. And to, to see that kind of like made me start thinking about how, how all these things are, um, how to put it, like these, these actions that we take in the cyber world, like how we actually perceive them is very different than if it was in the physical realm. And so I was thinking that, you know, a lot of these cyber attacks that happen between countries, uh, it's hard for us to attribute, is that actually the government doing it or is it a faction that is not associated with the government per se, but a lot of these actions that happen between nations which happen online in, cyber, in the cyber realm, well, uh, they would be considered an act of war if they happen in the physical realm. And to, to kind of think about that uh, in such a way is very strange because you're right, like, in terms of foreign policy and these types of things, there is no groundwork. We don't have like a Geneva Convention for the cyber world. So, you know, we don't have uh, rules saying what is off limits, what can you do, what are the repercussions, can you be prosecuted in international court because I don't think I've heard of a single cyber attack that has been prosecuted in international court yet. And so I think that this is an issue that keeps like snowballing but the 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 reaction on the on the end of our our government and our policymakers hasn't been moving at the the pace that it really needs to to catch up to these issues as they are occurring. Yeah, and I think uh, Obama not too long ago said something along the lines of that part of his policy objectives in his last two years would be to rein in the quote wild west that is the internet and, and in terms of you know there's a lot of cybersecurity legislation that he's pushing for in 2015 so obviously. 
trying to set some of those ground parameters, I think, will be an objective among many objectives that Congress and the president have to look at. So, but it, yeah, I mean, I think definitely these issues are starting to bubble up on the Hill very prevalently, whereas five years ago we weren't really having these types of conversations about cybersecurity, I think it was more about information and IT governance and data sharing than so much the, I guess, security aspect of it, which um, seems interesting to me. Um, and yeah, I, I echo pretty much what all of you have said about the Sony breach. Um, to me, I think the most uh, intriguing part about it was the journalism and um, more, in part, more importantly, this idea of nationalism and nation-state behavior becoming part of this attack. I mean, really, a lot of this was fueled by, you know, Western, anti-Western, um, Korean, uh, United States relations, which um, is very interesting. And I think the fact that that kind of played out in a virtual way is even more interesting um, because, obviously, um, that's a very intriguing way for North Korea to draw a lot of attention to themselves without having to use a lot of resources, right? So I think that's uh, particularly interesting as well. Um, shifting gears a little bit back to an earlier topic, uh, you know, it came to mind that, you know, all of us are in the cybersecurity program. We are, many of us are finishing up our first citation this semester, but everyone here at this round table is also, you know, your major is still in computer science. And so, um, some of us are in very cybersecurity-esque roles in industry already. Some of us are not. We're in more applied software engineering and computer science um, job tracks. What um, do, I want to hear from each of you whether or not you think by the time you get done with your time at Maryland if you're going to be more of, quote, like a cyber guy or if you see yourself more being in the computer science side and do the two necessarily have to be mutually exclusive? I mean, do you see a blend of using what you got out of cybersecurity to, to be a computer scientist or vice versa? Uh, where do you kind of stand on that? And I'll start with Franz. I'd probably classify myself more as the, the cyber guy because I, I really like... You know, solving all these, like, cybersecurity to me is one giant puzzle. And the best thing about it is when you, when you solve the puzzle, you know that you were smarter than someone else. Because it's all, like, it's all what it's about, right? It's, cybersecurity is about looking at what someone else made and figuring out what was wrong with it. And so I, I, that always intrigued me from the very beginning when I got started, and I think that will carry me through the rest of my career. Uh, but I think there definitely is this blend where you see the two things working together. I mean, I'm, like, with the company that I, I've started, uh, I'm, I'm kind of, in that role because I'm writing all the software for it and I have these really huge computer science problem, problems like how do I handle a website with mul like large numbers of users, I have to distribute it, I have to do uh, multiple node and, and cluster processing and how do I synchronize everything together and the, this like, amount of asynchronous stuff that's happening at the same time, that is very, like, it's a very computer science problem that to have to solve to make everything work together. At the same time, I'm still putting in that cybersecurity component because, once again, all the content for the competition that we have is all cybersecurity related, and you you have to be able to do these things. So even back in my previous internship, uh, back in high school, I was doing this kind of blend of security and, and programming where we were like, we were creating these custom network protocols over wireless where we found some, you know, these these vulnerabilities and these like uh, ink, uh, these problems in the spec that they had written for wireless, which allowed us to exploit this feature that where we could do like non-associated wireless networking um, that was encrypted, 
And I think there's a lot of importance between merging the two fields, actually, because there's only you can only go so far with either field, right? You, you can only do so much without cybersecurity until it becomes a problem, and cybersecurity doesn't take you too far unless you actually can apply it to a broader sense with, with computer science. And so I think that a blend is what we really need, and I think these are actually the students that we want to be producing out of college. Right, so to talk pretty much exactly to that point, I would say I'm more of a blend between the computer scientist and the cyber guy, although I do have a lot of development um, to do before I graduate and get into industry, um, I see myself working on projects that kind of enhance the cybersecurity analyst job. So we have a lot of companies that are creating tools that kind of make network analysis, network security, intrusion detection systems, stuff like that, more intuitive for users, more intuitive to set up, to control, to kind of check logs, to analyze things, um, to put them in a big big data context to kind of have these machine learning systems, things like that. So that's kind of taking the analyst's role in cybersecurity and blending it with the developer's role in um, computer science. So that's kind of the, the clash of yeah. the two fields that I see myself coming into. Yeah, so on the spectrum between you guys, I would say I'm more on the software development side than the cybersecurity side. And me, partially it might be because I'm a freshman and I'm just starting out in this program and might change over the course of the next few years we get more technical. Um, but I'm really more in the startup, or the, sorry, the software development side. And I think, you know, my interest in cybersecurity and, you know, learning this really falls in that I want to do kind of startups after college. And part of that is that if you want to do a startup, you can't just focus on development. You know, security is really a core part of it. You know, we see all these breaches that are going on, these attacks. And if you don't have someone that can do that, you know, you could be putting your business in a lot of danger. Um, to give an example of something, I was at a hackathon last um, last October, and we built a, it was basically like an incident report system for Bangladeshi workers, and one of the biggest problems we had with it was that there was no way to keep it secure, because we needed to prevent, because there was definitely money, like if people were out there complaining about a business, and you know, this business receives fines from the government, then you know, there are going to be people hired by these governments to find out who's reporting this so they can stop it, so we need some way to make it secure. And you know that is something that I would love to learn how to do, and that's really where my interest lies in cybersecurity. Yeah, I uh, I'm kind of probably closest to to Colin, um, not because I don't think cybersecurity is important. In some ways, it's more important than software development. But um, right now, at least, if someone was to say you have a choice between either writing the, you know, developing the world's most famous and uh, popular and uh, software product or uh, catching the world's most prevalent cybersecurity attack, they're both in some ways equally important. And you might, you can argue either way, there's not necessarily a right answer. But right now, I would probably have to say I'd rather be on the development side um, just because I think it's in my personality that I'd, I'd rather create than uh, defend or protect or analyze uh, a, a specific attack. Now, that being said, I'm interested in both. And I'm not going to shut out one opportunity just because, you know, this week I, I want to be a software developer because, honestly, I think there have been some weeks where I'm like, I want to do cybersecurity, I want to do reverse engineering, or I want to do um, network administration, things like that. So uh, I'm not really sure, but if you ask me right now, I, I would probably have to say uh, software development just because, to a certain extent, I like to create a little bit more than I like to defend. And I know it's not as simple as 
creating a dichotomy like that and saying that it's just this and this one is just this. But um, I, I, at the very least, I can say that if I go into cybersecurity, I'll be doing it in a manner that definitely involves computer science and, and development. Let me, since I'm here recruiting, let me ask you guys a question back uh, in in the sense that if you had a if if you were to go back to high school, it wasn't that long ago, a couple years for some of you, uh, maybe just last year. Um, what kind of advice would you give to high schoolers coming in now at this point? Or maybe I'm a sophomore or a junior in high school and I'm starting to get ready for this. Now that you know what you know, right? You're you're pretty far into this, Colin. You're you're even you know you're in your first year. You probably got a lot of lessons here as well. What what kind of advice? Just quick advice would you give to a high school student maybe entering into a program like this? I think that the best thing that incoming students can do if they, well, for one, if they're, if they're interested in this program, that's a huge step because at least they have an interest that they can identify, which is a lot of problem for a lot of students is they don't know what they want to do. Um, they don't have anything that they're that passionate about. If they have a passion in computer science, then there are tons and tons and tons of free resources that are available um, online. And so I would definitely suggest going on to Coursera, or there are courses uh, offered by Stanford that are online, and there are just tons of websites out there on how to uh, learn some programming. Go out there and learn a bunch of different programming languages just to get exposed with them. That would be my suggestion. Which, uh, which would be the first one? If I've never done anything before, what would be the first one? If you've never done anything before, I would recommend... I'm not sure. I, I really like... Ruby, and that's the one that I would recommend just because I want people to love it as much as I did when I learned it. But on the other hand, I feel like if, if there's certain languages that are like, wow, this is the easiest one, and it taught me a lot of really bad programming techniques. Um, so I would say that you're probably best off using Java uh, just because it kind of enforces a sort of stricter uh, typing mechanism, which is kind of important, and uh, it, it teaches a lot of it's very explicit about the way that it does object-oriented programming, um, so th which is kind of the way that we learn it here. Um, I actually think I started with Python, so I didn't do that. Uh, and I don't remember how to code in Python at all anymore. But the important thing, it doesn't really matter what language you pick. It really doesn't when you're in high school. It's not that big of a deal. You're going to learn a bunch in college if you stay with it. Just start learning something, because the sensation of learning a programming language and doing, being able to do something with it, at least from my perspective, was really cool and is what got me interested, even though right now I probably couldn't write a Python program just off of the top of my head. I have to go to get you started. Yeah, but it, it got me interested in it, and that's what I would recommend. Go out, learn something, make something small, show your friends, impress everyone, <laughs> whatever whatever you got to do to stay stay interested in it. I agree with Ashton totally on that, you know, really get involved and try it out. Um, you know, maybe that's as simple, at least for me, as, you know, picking up my TA-84 calculator and writing a program that would do something really simple that just made my life easier. Because I found that, I, you know, even if it was basic and probably the worst language to ever program in, um, it was fun and I really loved it. And, you know, that kind of led me to go with the track that I'm going on now. You know, I mean, I also want to say, you know, Ashton was very technical in what he was talking about in learning programming languages. Um, you know, even if ACES, you don't have to be technical to be in it. We do a lot of policy. Um, one of my favorite classes I took last semester was a pure policy class. And we just looked at the history of cybersecurity and some of the very big events that happened. And we looked at how people dealt with them. And I thought that was, you know, very funny for me to learn about. And there are definitely people that are going to go down that track in cybersecurity. So if computer science isn't your thing, you know, that's definitely okay. But I would definitely recommend trying out just like Ashton did, or recommended to do. Um, 
because you might find you like it, and you know, if you don't ever try it, you never know. So that's my recommendation. I think I have a fairly unique perspective to offer on this issue because in my senior year of high school, I didn't even consider computer science or cybersecurity as um, something I wanted to do. I didn't even know cybersecurity was a thing when I started senior year of high school. Um, one of my friends actually invited me to participate in a cybersecurity competition with him. And in doing that, we kind of would practice in evenings with a, a group of five other guys. And we worked our way up until we actually placed third in the state in this competition. And it was kind of that experience of working with other people and working with a team that made me see the, um, the fun that could be had in this industry and the working with the new technologies um, and how exciting cybersecurity and computer science could be that really interests me. So if I had to offer any advice, I would really just say find people interested in the same thing as you are and stick with them and kind of work with them to learn and um, yeah, get better at what you want to do. If I could offer one word of advice, it would be the word explore. And I think that's very important. I mean, back when I was in high school, I just remember I had so much... Like, in high school, everyone has a lot of time until you invest your time in something. And so I think it's very important that you find whatever it is that you like doing in high school so that you have that time in college to go and, and actually learn it. And I was very fortunate in high school. Like, I started learning about security probably back in freshman year of high school, and I didn't really start getting into it until sophomore year. But uh, I was just very interested in, like, web security. And so over the course of three years, you know, I was into uh, figuring out vulnerabilities with music streaming and how you can actually download songs from websites which we're only, allowed to, we're only supposed to stream it from. And then I took that, you know, interest and my, my exploration outside of whatever I was required to do. And then I ended up giving a talk at DEF CON uh, at, the end of my senior, uh, at the end of my senior year which I was the youngest speaker at DEF CON that, that year, and it was really an amazing experience that just was only possible because I was interested and I just went with it and kept going and see where it took me. And I think that's something you have to let yourself do in high school. Don't be afraid of what are the things that can go wrong. I mean, you're in high school. What can possibly go wrong that will ruin your life? Like, I, I think that in high school, you're in a very good position where you've got the time and you need to figure out what your interests are, and I think that's what you need to do when you're in that position. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things that strikes me about my high school time is that um, I had really good mentorship, so I think finding a mentor is a really valuable thing, whether it's a teacher that is willing to go the extra mile in teaching you something, or whether it's an outside opportunity that you can find. You know, there are a growing number of high school internships where you can have a really great opportunity to get um, experience kind of ahead of the time, but, you know, it doesn't really necessarily have to be an internship or any type of formal program. Find a mentor that would be uh, interested in basically teaching you something technical or something deep dive that you can't necessarily get in the classroom or maybe at home um, and kind of cultivate that and grow. Like Franz said, you know, you really do have a lot of extra time in high school that you're not going to have in college if you're in a program like ACES or, or really any type of thing. So uh, you want to take advantage of those four years because you don't get that time back going forward um, and you don't appreciate the time that you once had until after you're over on the other side of the hill. Wrapping up, um, if it's one thing that you want to do before you graduate from Maryland that you either do have the opportunity to do or you don't have the opportunity to do and you want it to be available, what is it and why? 
I think there's something I want to, if I want to do something in college before I graduate, I think it's probably to um, publish a paper or co-publish a paper with someone. I think that's definitely something that uh, when you're in college, you have a lot of time to focus on, on, on certain things and do research, especially because in, in the ACES program, we've got several opportunities to do research throughout the, the four years that you're at college. So I would... I want to do that. I, I I helped do some of that stuff in in, uh, in high school, but it really was like my name was kind of just like attached to the very bottom, and I didn't really take a huge role in it. But I think there really is something about um, learning something new by yourself and possibly doing something that no one really has done before, and putting it in a way that's public and like sharing your knowledge, building upon what's already been thrown out there, and kind of expanding the sphere of or a sphere of knowledge that we have as a community, and that's that's a great time to do it is in college, so I'm going to hopefully do that. So I guess the big thing for me is when I came to college, I um, kind of had been told from mentors and other um, people that I uh, cared about their advice that one of the most important things you could do in college is get experience doing internships in the field you're interested in. So I'm really looking forward to my first internship in industry um, this summer with AT&T. I'm really looking forward to getting that hands-on experience and learning what my role will be like in the world once I graduate. For me, I think my goal, or at least something I want to do, is I really want to meet a lot of people in a lot of different disciplines who, who you know study a lot of different things. You know, I'm looking at joining Quest and meeting a lot of business people there. I'm also looking at you know some of the incubators on campus and people that do all kinds of different things from you know clubs that I'm in, activities. Because I think you know you can get in college something you can't do in high school. You can get a lot of different viewpoints on life by all the different people that go here, and it's really interesting to do that. So that's probably one thing I want to really want to see myself do. Yeah, I think one of the main things that I would like to do potentially even this semester is uh, publish a, a research paper just because, or get it accepted somewhere because uh, like like Franz was kind of saying, it would be exciting to feel like you were the first to explore some area and actually like contribute back to the field that you're engaged in um, and that would just kind of feel like I validated, like I, I've spent my whole life up to this point kind of consuming and that's something that I plan to keep on doing like doing like you gotta continue learning at all times to keep definitely you wanna consume more information than you try to produce because it doesn't really work the other way around um, but for the first time to be able to kind of give back and uh, see that you know this is a new area that you've explored that would be really exciting so hopefully by the time I graduate I can achieve that all right, I think, well, with that, we'll give it a wrap, yeah. and uh, we'll say live. Uh, well, let me say what I want to do before the end. I want to come back and do this again. Uh, we've got some work to do. It's been kind of fun to kind of break in uh, with you guys here and be able to do the, uh, you know, pass the mic, so to speak, get your opinion, uh, have you guys all weigh in on these issues. So I appreciate you taking an hour out of your time to get this done. We'll come back, uh, hoping to come back maybe in the fall. We'll catch back up again and uh, bring some more equipment down here and do another podcast. We want to say thanks for uh, for watching or listening to Cyber Frontiers, and hopefully you've gotten a good insight on 
what's going on here in the world of uh, the ACES program, University of Maryland. And uh, we'll make this available both in audio and video, and so make sure you head out to theaverageguy.tv. If you haven't subscribed yet to Cyber Frontiers, you might want to do that as well. Super easy. All the subscription options are available over on the right-hand side, although I think the video switched if we do this the other way. Uh, you want to get those available to you as well, or just head out to theaverageguy.tv slash subscribe. That'll get you all the subscription options out there. And it would mean a lot to Christian and Ashton both if you guys would subscribe to the podcast. So with that, we'll say goodbye, and thanks for listening.